Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Racquetball Show podcast. It's been a while since I've released an episode of the podcast, and I'm excited to be saying that we're going to have more podcasts coming up at you in the near future. With the whole coronavirus thing that's going on, Tim, Charlie, and I sat down for this episode because we had the time to. (laughs) Ironically, we play a lot of racquetball together. But we generally don't sit down and podcast together when we do that, which is kind of silly. But the coronavirus situation gave us the opportunity to get together on a Zoom call and make it happen. So if you want to check out the video portion of that, you can check out the Racquetball Show YouTube page. And I'll also have a post about that on Facebook where you can find the YouTube link of this where you can watch us on video. But if you're satisfied with just the audio portion of this, then you're in the right place. So Tim Prigo and Charlie Pratt were the first guests on the very first episode of the Racquetball Show, so I was excited to have them back on the podcast to check back in, and we have a lot of just general discussion when we're hanging out together, and I thought this was a fun and unique episode because rather than it being me, Dylan, just interviewing somebody and just peppering them with questions, this was more of a fun sort of roundtable conversation where we all asked each other questions and the discussion was more able to bounce from place to place. So hope you enjoy this one, episode 21 of the Racquetball Show. I wanted to take a quick moment to plug one of my sponsors, Gearbox Racquetball. Now, full disclosure, Gearbox sponsors me as a player, so of course, you know, sponsoring me on this podcast makes total sense, and I wouldn't sponsor any other brand, but I choose Gearbox for a reason. I think they're a fantastic brand. They provide top-of-the-line racquetball equipment, really anything you need, rackets, eye guards, gloves, bags, and all the other accessories that you might need. And as a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you guys already know that. You're aware of all the brands out there because probably if you're listening to this, you're pretty darn into racquetball. So I just wanted to take a moment to plug Gearbox because I think they not only provide awesome products, but they do an awesome job of promoting racquetball. And they have amazing customer service, and everyone you interact with on the Gearbox team is an awesome person. At least that's what I've found in my experience. So if you're in the market for racquetball equipment, I would advise that you check out Gearbox. You can check them out at gearboxsports.com. All right. Welcome to the Racquetball Show podcast on this one. This is a, we are reuniting the first official podcast crew. So we have Charlie Pratt and Tim Prigo. We did the very first episode at the Mac Multnomah Athletic Club. Just, we were having a beer and just talking about racquetball and this is kind of reuniting the crew. It's, it's in the midst of the coronavirus. So we're doing it remotely, which is kind of ironic because we see each other fairly often just playing together. But um, now we have time to sit down and podcast, which should be fun. And it's good to have you guys back on the show. Likewise, man. We'd all be together probably playing racquetball right now. So this is just our way of of coping, really. (laughs) 
yeah thanks thanks dylan it's this is a historic historic day you know the reuniting and yeah it was just one beer we only had one yeah uh during that first one (laughs) just one no but uh yeah really excited to be here thanks and uh i like i like the enthusiasm that you guys have for the sport enough so to get a, a podcast going and Dylan, it's pretty impressive what you have created in your podcast so far. And some of the people you've had on there is, is pretty impressive. I don't know how you convince all these people to do it, but somehow you do. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's actually easier than I think, at least I thought at first. I was like super nervous at first just starting it. I remember being nervous recording with you guys. And then just like every single person I've asked, I think, has just been totally open to doing it, which totally was a surprise to me but has been really cool racquetball community pretty awesome people i have a question that this this is kind of interesting idea so in other sports like the nba it's like if you had access to say like a lebron james or you know a star like that you might act kind of differently around them if you got you know five minutes to meet them but in our sport you can pretty much have access to any pro so my question is how does the personal relationship and seeing the pros more as people than maybe like sports icons, how does that like change your view of sports and how we look at like sports stars? Yeah. Racquetball is unique in that sense. And you're right about that. There's no, there's no barrier in between fans and, and pros. Um, I mean, speaking for myself, like on tour, it's, it's sometimes it's nice to have that barrier. Like when you're, if you're, you know, trying to get focused for a match or if you just got off the court and maybe you just lost and you're not feeling too great. You know, I know there's been times where I've been, uh, you know, not so nice to, to fans um, because I just wasn't in the mood to really talk to anyone. Um, whether, like I said, it was either before a match. Sometimes it would happen when I was refereeing too. Was you know I'd, we'd be in between games. I'd go get a drink of water, and someone would come up and try to ask me. And this happened a lot, uh, like hundreds of times probably. Is they would come up and ask me about a rule or you know why I made a certain call and, and stuff. And but that's incredible. Just the fact that like you could actually go to the head referee and mm-hmm. ask personal rules question yeah I don't say it to say oh like yeah we have no fans or you know racquetball is unimportant it's more like it's really cool that we have that access and it also makes me just like look at all the guys and I you know I've been a writer for the IRT for years in the past and being able to interview all these guys adds to it but it's just like seeing them as just more people that you can relate to rather than this on you know these maybe you know, untouchable athletes that you don't really know. They're, they're so different than you. You don't know what motivates them. And, you know, they're on a different level and their focus is unreal. It's like you get to kind of break down that barrier and see that, oh, these are just people just really like you and me that like to play racquetball. And some are just really, really good and spend mm-hmm. time training. So that's what I like about it. Yeah. Yeah, and racquetball is not a sport where it's at a level where, uh, you know, I think a, a lot of athletes probably don't have maybe, I don't know if egos would be the right word, but they don't, they don't consider themselves this, like superstars because as soon as you leave the club, nobody really knows who you are. 
Right. So they don't have that. And, you know, I think for our sport, maybe it would be kind of nice to have a little bit of a separation because it would, it would kind of give the image of that pro being, um, or the professionals being uh, really professionals. And, you know, that not saying that fans shouldn't be able to come up and, and say anything, but, you know, maybe just having a little bit of a, a separation. And For so sure. when, when that time does come, when, when you do get that conversation, it's even, it's an even more special moment, you know, yeah, true. I totally agree that it's very cool. It's very cool, but maybe just for the image of our sport and for our athletes, it would be nice to be a little more untouchable. You could say just a little bit more. For sure. No, I, I, I completely agree with you, but it's kind of like the way, I mean, I don't, maybe racquetball athletes aren't like celebrities, but in a sense, I kind of think of like, they're almost like folk heroes, like in our, in our sport, you know what I mean? It's like Kane will like grow in the imagination of racquetball players for a long time. And there'll be all different types of stories, some untrue, I'm sure, and some, and mostly true, but like, you know, he'll kind of grow as this, more mystical figure than I think uh, an, like an aging celebrity or the memory of a celebrity. Like, you know, you talk to some of these guys, you're like, oh, remember, um, oh, who's that guy that jumped the trains, Charlie? He was the train jumper? Bo Keeley. 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 Like for me, he's like a racquetball folk hero. And it's like, had he have been some sort of, you know, A-list celebrity, maybe that would have been the case. So, you know, while I do hope that more people can be successful outside the club, there is something that I embrace about this whole community we got going on. Yeah. I think it has its pluses and pluses and minuses. I think that it's really awesome that you have this community. That's it's this small tight knit little world where you, everybody kind of knows everybody and it's cool going to these tournaments and you meet a few new faces and then you see a ton of people that you've known forever and you have really close bonds with them. And yeah, what Charlie is saying where I think it would be probably a beneficial thing to have more of a separation between the professional athletes and just the, the everyday racquetball people. Because I think when they're, when it's more of a buddy buddy relationship, that's it's on the one hand, great, but on the other hand, it can detract from when you want to like a good example is I saw Bobby Horn had a post about essentially he was bidding his services as like a doubles partner at a local tournament. And people were pissed off about that. People thought that he shouldn't be asking for money from, from people. It's like he's taking from them or something. And I think because on a certain level, this guy is, and most people are just friends with a lot of the people in the community, it's seen in a different way. Whereas if it were, if there were a clear distinction between like professional athlete and then the rest of the people in the racquetball world, there wouldn't be this this feeling of it's bad for them to want money from us. It's a good point. And Charlie, do you give lessons and or advertise um, online, or how do you run all that? I don't do it so uh, online, like on social media. I haven't gotten to that point quite yet. Um, <laughs> yeah, like uh, I I see the value, and and part of me wants to do it because you know it's basically free advertising. But I do it around the, the club that I work at and just on a more personal basis and people will call or text or email or something, but I haven't gotten to advertising my services as a, as an instructor or coach quite yet, because I'm still a player 
and I don't want to, you know, I just haven't gotten to that point yet where, where I'm just full coach. It's sort of coaching and lessons are a little more on the down low, you could say, or just a little bit more like locally. But as soon as I start advertising my services as a coach or an instructor online, you know, I, I just think it will take away a little bit of the, like the player aspect and even mentally too, like for myself, I still want to consider myself like a, an athlete and a competitor instead of uh, a co like, um, I mean, I'm a coach and I do the junior coaching. We'll talk about that a little bit later, I guess, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think it's a slow transition from being player to coach. It's not like immediate, and I'm sort of in that transition, you could say, but I haven't stopped playing and I don't really have any plans to either. So, yeah. Yeah. So we did the first interview and at that time that I think was around maybe two and a half years ago, something like that. It was 2017. And yeah. It was 2017. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe the fall. Anyway, since yeah. then a lot has happened for you, Charlie, where you have since that point you went to the Pan Am Games, you became the U.S. junior team coach, mm -hmm. and you won your first tier one in Portland, which was a hell of an experience. Mm. Um, when it comes to, you were talking a bit about coaching, so you are now the U.S. junior team coach. What has that experience been like? It's been great. Um, I was on the team as a junior, like when I was basically since... 10 years old all the way till 18 and uh you know it was basically the best part of uh of my life um was the fact that i was on the usa team for the sport that i love to play it was just something i had a lot of pride what were the in. kids like back then i was in your age group so i kind of know but like what? you said what were the kids like yeah so like your fellow teammates were you guys very well behaved were they really well trained what what was the was it was it chaos what was going on back then i would say um yeah we were we were pretty well behaved um there were not i mean me personally i was not really like uh, i was so wrapped up in how cool the experience was that i wasn't really looking to go and i don't know get into the trouble or miss you know, mischief or anything like that. I was, you know, we had our training camps at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, and it was just uh, an amazing experience. And that, that was, I was just wrapped up in that. And, uh, and then going to Worlds and training for Worlds and all that was, it was just too important for me to, to be, you know, to, uh, I don't know, to misbehave or whatever. And I think most of the most of the other players around were the same. And as time went on, I sort of, I never was the captain of the team, but, you know, I definitely took somewhat of a captain, captain's role. And um, the, the players who were captains were, you know, they, they took it very seriously also. So I, that set the tone for everyone. So in my years, not really. I mean, we had some times when I was younger, you know, there'd be some, Sometimes where a kid would go out past curfew or, or something like that and they'd get in trouble for it. Um, you know, so, but it wasn't really a wild group. I mean, it was, we were, 
it was sort of interesting just seeing how all of us sort of handled this this level of being uh being at that level of being an athlete and uh and you know competing for your country and things like that it was everybody handled that differently you know and it's it's an interesting feeling because it's such an individual sport but then now you're part of a team so you're kind of you're you're trying to uh encourage your teammates and things like that and, and be a good team member but at the same time you have to focus on yourself and your own performance and things like that so that's how it was for me at least as a player and i got to i was on the team you know the the team that i coach is called the world cup team which is 14 16s and 18s so the ages are anywhere from basically 13 to 19 and i was on that team for 5 years and but they also have the the younger team which we call the esprit team which is the 10s and 12s so i was on that team for like 4 years also and so I had a long run. I mean, that was a big part of my life, but I, I got to experience all of it. And now as a coach, all of that experience really helps because I'm the first, I'm the first head coach to, who was also a player on the team. So I know where they're coming from. I know what it's like to try to balance training in school and, and maybe other sports and, you know, the training itself and what it really takes to to get to the level of being uh, ready for a world championship and things like that. So I can relate to the players in that sense. Yeah. What, what would you say to, if there's some juniors listening and, and I know we all run into this even as adults, but like, you know, you're young. I remember being young and you're training, you're practicing and it feels like you just can't win. And, and as a kid, it's easy to get very frustrated. And I feel like a lot of kids get to a point and kind of get frustrated with where their game's at and then just kind of back away from the game. Mm -hmm. What would you say to a junior who maybe is a little frustrated and is contemplating, you know, just walking away from the game for a bit? How would yeah. you deal with that frustration? Yeah. Um, I, I would say that, and from my personal experience, it's probably that they are not doing maybe they're putting a lot of time in and they care about it a lot, but they're probably not doing the right things to make their game improve at a fast level. I was, I was part of that description too. I, I didn't, I look back on my training. It's like, man, I, I wasted a lot of time doing things that um, wasn't really like helping my game as quick as it as some of the other stuff that did it took me a while to kind of figure out what the more efficient ways of training would be. And I was, I was like really into, you know, the hard work and things like that. But for example, I really like to run. I really like to go on runs of anywhere from three to five miles. I was a cross country runner when I was younger. I loved to do that. And I considered that part of training but I, I don't, I don't believe that running or doing any kind of distance running is really great for racquetball um, because it's racquetball is such a fast twitch sport that when you decide I'm going to go out and jog for 45 minutes at kind of the same pace the whole time, you're not training yourself for racquetball. And in fact, you're actually getting slower because you're training slow twitch muscles. So 
Um, that's one example of something that I used to do quite a bit when I was younger and I would work really hard. I'd get done with these runs and be really tired, but then my game wasn't, I wasn't getting any better at racquetball. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the hours and that I was putting in wasn't reflecting how much better I was. So that's just one example of, of so many things. You know, another thing I wasn't into doing drills back then. I just wanted to play all the time, play, play, play. And I would, I would get practice games and things like that. And that's good too, but I never improved the things, you know, that I really needed to improve. Like if my serve or something is struggling, like my drive serve, yeah, you can play games and you can drive serve the whole time and maybe it gets a little bit better, but nothing compares to going into the, to a court by yourself and working on your drive serve or working on your backhand or whatever it is. Nowadays, I'm much more into the repetitive drills that really improve certain things you need to work on. And back then, I was really bad at being able to say, what are my weaknesses and how do I improve them? I just trained and yeah, I would have those moments of frustration. I never won a world title, never really came close. Uh, I mean, I was, I was definitely up there with the best, but had I done more racquetball specific training or focused on my weaknesses and things like that, my improvement would have been a lot better and a lot faster. And I, I think that's what I would say to somebody who's maybe doesn't feel like they're improving fast enough or they're, they're getting frustrated with it is you have to take a step back and you have to realize what type of sport racquetball really is physically, mentally as well. You have to look at your game and be very honest with yourself and say, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? And then you just say, I have to focus on these weaknesses. So for me, the fact that I enjoyed running is yeah. not something you got to do stuff that you don't enjoy doing because that's probably the stuff you're not good at. And I didn't do enough of that as, as a, a junior. And I think that's probably the case with a lot of kids. Well, that's a good, some good tips on definitely how to improve. And clearly you want to win as the junior coach and you like want your kids to do well, but let's just say someone's not winning. You know, how important is winning truly for a junior? Because in, in, from my perspective, the reason I asked the question is like, it doesn't seem to be, you know, if you get hung up on winning and losing, especially at a young age, I just feel like it makes your life not as good, you know? So it's like, you know, you may be doing the right things, but then you still may lose. But how important is just sticking with it, especially through your junior years? I think of like, you know, who heard it? I never heard of Kane as a junior. Um, and then there's other players that were great juniors that kind of just fell off. So it's like, how much is the enjoyment aspect uh, part of racquetball and being able to appreciate it? Uh, how important is that for, you know, your game in as like looking at it in the course of a career rather than just, you know, tournament by tournament. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just going to change with everybody because everyone mentally is a lot different too. I know there's a lot of players who they, I mean, when they, if they lose, it's like, it's a really big deal for them or, you know, I mean like winning and losing is, is just determines like, basically what mood they're in I could I could fall into that category I guess saying that it has it has meant a lot to me like it's basically at times in my life it's the most important thing 
of what's going on there, whether I'm trying to make the USA team or if I'm at the world championships or something. That's the biggest thing that I care about in that moment is whether I get that win or not. You, you get better with dealing with wins and losses. Like I would have huge wins, but, but now, but I, I am able to be more calm. You know, I'm not jumping around for joy. You know, I'm able to say, okay, yeah, I won. I'm, I'm really happy about it, but I need to focus on my next match. Things like that, where in the past, like if I had a really big win or a win that was really important to me, I probably would have been, I don't know, going around the club smiling a lot and, and you know, hanging out and just a, a big, a good mood, things like that. But I will say too that winning, you know, even just one tough match can be such a big confidence booster that that alone can propel someone, like a young player, for another four five months maybe a year's worth of training and, and trying hard I mean that's how powerful one good solid victory can be and depending on the person too a loss can also be a big motivating factor and yeah it was it was tough like as a junior like I said what I thought was I was working hard I was training hard but then not being able to beat certain players I remember Jeff Stark was one of them if you know you might you might see like jeff i it took me a long time to beat jeff and you know i thought that i should be beating him and stuff he was just a smarter uh more savvy player than i was and um so it was very frustrating as like a 17 or 18 year old not being able to beat him when i when basically my life at that point was training for racquetball um and uh so that that was hard i was like you know just that that would that would hurt a lot when it's like i can't even beat this guy yet you know and, and um but that's that's the way it is you know that's you just have to take your your defeats for a long time especially as a kid because you're you're constantly climbing 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 you're pushing yourself you know it's almost easier when you get to that top level because you know, you're, you're playing a lot of players that are basically around your level or, or players that you should be beating. But as a junior coming up, you're like, okay, now I'm, now I'm in the opens and I'm going to have, I'm, you're basically, or the pros and you're just going to be taking a lot of losses. And it doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. It just means like experience is huge, you know, experience and mentally being able to understand like how to, uh, keep yourself in a match, whether you're up or down, things like those are the kinds of things that you learn along the way that you can't really teach um, that you have to. Obviously winning and losing can dictate some level of enjoyment out of the sport for sure. But I mean, you know, you watch maybe different juniors play as a coach and you're like, this person looks like they're very intense, very focused. Uh, maybe they get a little angry and it maybe affects their mood later on in the day. And yeah, someone else who is not as affected by these things. I guess my question is, you know, do you see, and, and as a player, do you see a lot of enjoyment in playing competitively? Like it is, is it enjoyable or like it, to me, it says that some, some, there's something that is expressed that is like needs to be expressed. Hmm. I don't know if I would call it like enjoyment. I don't know. What would you call maybe just like being in a flow state or how would you describe that? Yeah, everyone is going to be different in that sense. But for me personally, you're right. It, it's uh, like, of course, I enjoy it. But there are times where, you know, before a match, you know, you're getting ready 
and things like that. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily call that like in a, like a fun time. I mean, it's a very intense time where you're, um, you're putting everything you have in mentally to prepare yourself for something. And it's not an enjoyable time. Um, ultimately you enjoy being where you are and the fact that you're going to compete, you have to definitely take a step back and say, okay, this is pretty awesome, you know, but it's not enjoyable. And even in the court competing at that level is it's very hard. Like, you know, it, some people might be able to get in that flow state and everything, but when you're, I mean, you're giving everything you have mentally, mostly, and that's what makes it tough, but it's sort of this bigger picture. Like, do I enjoy it? Yes, I do. I love competing at like an extremely high level where I'm giving everything I have. Like, you can't do that in a lot of other things, a lot of other aspects in life. It almost strikes me as good later on. Like it's like mm -hmm. you're being ultra focused on something gives you some sort of mental release later. It's mm -hmm. like, I'm glad that my, you know, brain chemistry went through that because now I feel better. But I agree with you, like, you know, getting ready for a match and sometimes playing an intense match that's very tense is like, it's not necessarily like, I don't feel physically good necessarily my mind is very focused it's almost like it'd be almost similar to like you know being in a fight like flight or fight you know almost like you're so focused in on the task at hand that your adrenaline's going and you can't really say you're having fun necessarily but it certainly like makes you feel good later you're like yeah i feel a lot more mentally healthy now mm -hmm. that yeah it's yeah. it's Sorry, go ahead, Dylan. You haven't said anything in about 10 minutes. Go ahead. <laughs> That's okay. I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm just being the point guard here. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so I remember talking to you about this, Prigo, because you are someone who seems to like experience racquetball through fun. Like it always seems fun for you. And I don't feel that to the same degree at all. Um, like I, I would say, I, you know, I love racquetball. I, I guess I'd say I have fun playing it, but more so when I'm on the court, it's like, it's more about other things. It's more about like getting into the flow state, competing. Often it's like the, the, the desire to avoid losing can be one of the bigger motivators more so than just like, yeah, I want to win this. Um, and I think that I've seen that in a lot of other people too. I know like when I talked to Kane, he, you know, says he envisions the other person is literally trying to take food off his kid's table and that's like a seems to be a big motivating factor for him talking to rocky he was just fed up i interviewed him after he had lost a match to alex landa and he was really really upset about that so i think that can be a huge motivating factor i just find it really interesting to see what motivates different people and i think often for the best players it seems to be like a fear of losing to a yeah. degree and I, and wanting, I wanting to maintain what they have and, and not lose to somebody. And I respect that. And I, there's definitely that, that competitive dog in me as well. I think there is in every high level raffle player, there's that to some extent, but I think for me, at least it goes down to like, you know, a personal philosophy as well. Like how do you, when you approach life, you know, it's like for me, uh, so through my experiences and, and what I believe it's like, I would like to have a long, healthy life with a strong community around me. And I know healthy means like being, focusing on things like matches that are very intense is healthy for me. Um, 
playing sports like you know I play other sports like squash and it's like and I you know I, I have a you know I work and it's like just keeping that balance in life is way more important to me and that's what I like when I approach the game that's what I look at it's like I want to be the Jeff Stark I want to be the guy playing when he's 55 and in good shape and like having fun and know a bunch of people uh, and I totally respect if like you know, I want to have wins and accomplishments as well. But at the same time, when I get in the court, I kind of just have that, you know, that life philosophy is still there. It's just like, you know, let's focus on the task at hand, of course. But when I step off the court, to some extent, I'm just happy to be there playing. And I feel lucky for that. I'm just like somewhat grateful to have the opportunity to even do it, to get the exercise, to be able to compete, to be able to have that release is something that I feel very fortunate for. I know a lot of people, you know, they don't have something like this. Mm. So for me, it's like, I'm in there and I'm like, I'm kind of getting mine, even if I'm getting my butt kicked, you know what I mean? I'm like, this is still me time. And I know this is good for me. And so, yeah, that's kind of the way I look at it. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like a break from some of the stuff in life. So, yeah. Yeah. I personally, I feel like I had to grapple with that a bit when I think when I was rising up the ranks of like the open level, for instance, I think I was more motivated by getting wins, <laughs> avoiding losses, just pure like competitiveness. And then when I started, I felt like to a degree, I had moved beyond the open ranks and cared more about how am I doing in the pro stuff. And frankly was losing early every single pro tournament. I feel like that was something I had to grapple with where if I were to keep motivating myself by like, I hate losing. I want to win. I want to be competitive. That was, I felt horrible doing that. And that was an unsustainable strategy for me, an unsustainable way of driving myself. So yeah, to your point, Tim, I think I've been more motivated lately by like, I want to have this be a, an awesome part of my life and I want to enjoy when I'm playing and I want to, you know, use this as a way to get into good shape and to like be a part of like a awesome, fun, healthy lifestyle. So and like I, what you're saying about the philosophy driving things. And I look at it too. It's like, maybe you could say like what separates someone. I mean, I don't believe this, but the argument could be made. What separates someone like Kane and say, uh, who's, you know, like uh, uh, Alex Londa. You could say, oh, like Alex, this needs to be more motivated. I don't believe that necessarily, or he needs to be more competitive. You could maybe make that argument. But I don't think it would be fair to say what separates the average club player and a guy like Kane or Londa is not motivation or the will to win. You know, like there is this very real thing about like genetics and life, you know, how long have you been playing and just how, how skilled are you? Like, so to me, it's like, yes, you should take that warrior's attitude and be competitive and never giving up. But at the same time, you know, being realistic and realizing it's like, I'm not, I'm not a not, it's like, the reason I'm not a professional racquetball player is not because I just don't have the drive or the will to compete, you know? So I don't want this. I wouldn't want people to conflate the two ideas. It's like, yes, when you're at that level, you need to be very competitive, but that's not like the end all be all. These guys aren't pros just because they're competitive. That's my point. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I actually disagree to a certain degree where I think that if you are, if you start at an early enough age, I think your mindset and your motivation over the course of time is actually probably a bigger factor than just your, your pure genetic capability. 
I think yeah. the best of the best have to have both. But I think that there's a ton to be said for just spending a ton of time on the court. And what drives that is your attitude about it and your motivation and your desire to win. And I think that's something that's actually great about racquetball. Because I think, yeah, there's definitely truth to that. Because maybe if you're super motivated, even from your, your little kid to be in the NBA, it may not happen. But like, if you're super motivated to be on the IRT as a kid, it could probably happen for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I'll, say, I'll say for myself, like, uh, growing up as a junior, I started around, like, age seven and played in tournaments and stuff. And by 10, I had won, I won nationals. I won junior nationals at 10 and under. And I just know from there, it was very, very, it was almost impossible for me to even consider giving up racquetball at that point, because, you know, once I, I, don't, I guess you could say, once you get like the taste of being one of the best, you, it's really hard to walk away from that. Like you just, I mean, it's, yeah, it's really hard to turn your back. And that's sort of been my life ever since then has been this struggle of saying like, I can't walk away from the sport because I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm one of the best, you know, and even at the adult level now is like me walking away right now. Yeah. There's other things that try to pull you away from the sport or it's like, you really need to be spending that much time training for these things when it's not really a sustainable future. Um, but it's, it's a very difficult thing to just say, like, you know, I know I'm one of the best, but I'm going to walk away. It's, it's been impossible for me, basically. Um, once you get that taste, it's, uh, it's like you just have to, you have to keep going until you're not one of the best anymore. And then it's like, okay, well, I guess it's easier for me to, to walk away now. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the current state of racquetball. And the first thing that comes to mind just right now is the coronavirus, COVID-19, and its effects on the world and our sport. So all the clubs are closed, tournaments are shutting down. What are you guys' thoughts on that? And what are some predictions? When do you think, I know you guys are well-read people, about when do you think we'll be back at it? At this point, everybody's a well-read person on uh covid right we're all Hopefully. experts we're all experts at this point um yeah i mean it's, it's so interesting and it's like who could ever predict you know i mean I, i'm optimistic and thinking I, I think we're gonna you could say flatten the curve and it'll start going going down you know the number of cases will start going down and i think we'll be uh back to to doing events and racquetball events but June would be my guess like um, although you know that I think a lot of people would probably say that that's that's crazy because I mean obviously impossible to say this yeah this pot this talk will be looked back and with hindsight you know but at the same time it just my premonition is that no events will probably go on until the beginning of next season in September um, just because I think that you know, me and Charlie are tournament directors and we postponed our tournament until the summer. So I truly, you know, I truly hope that this is not the case, but you know, my, my thoughts would be that, you know, everything is probably a no go until spring or until fall. So that's my, that's my thought. And by yeah. the way, the date is March 22nd. I'm sure you would have put that on there, Dylan, but 
<laughs> people an idea we're like we're about two weeks past when the nba canceled their season this is like basically the, the first official day of like shelter in place for oregon where it's now and you know you you really only go out of your house for extremely important things like food or medicine you don't visit you don't visit anyone you definitely don't visit you know your like any anyone over the age of 60 or 70 that is they're saying that they're like you know if you're if a loved one or something is in a, a nursing home it's like do not go see them they say that the most dangerous thing really like the most dangerous thing right now is for like a grandson to go visit the grandma because you know the younger you are the less susceptible you are to getting sick or having it being really serious but the older you are <clears throat> the exact opposite and kids are playing and stuff and i went out yesterday on like uh not a jog i don't jog anymore <laughs> they were sprints i went to do some sprints and uh i was actually pretty surprised that at the amount of kids that were at the like soccer field and they were playing and they're biking around and they're they're throwing the ball back and forth and stuff and i was like didn't they did they not see the whole like shelter in place thing i mean you know i just was i was pretty surprised at that um you know and i was doing like my sprints and i was making sure i was as you know i would sprint and i would i would go around somebody or something you know like a good six feet distance so yeah, really interesting times. Uh, it's, I don't know. I mean, but uh, we're basically at a shelter in place point uh, right now. And this is like the very beginning of, of that where we're like, wow, this is very serious. Well, I wonder not only obviously the events come to mind in on the racquetball calendar, but also the, the clubs themselves come to mind. I know that a lot of people play at LA Fitnesses but also I feel like a lot of the racquetball hotspots are these older local businesses, these older clubs, these gyms, you know, like the uh, gym me and Charlie go to sometimes. Um, that's just like a local small business. And we all know, you know, I have a business and all businesses are getting hit. So I just worry about some of these gyms where they have a lot of the racquetball courts in the country. You know, I don't know how this uh, financial downturn is going to affect the state of club post our events yeah and our our gym tim our gym which is a privately owned gym mm -hmm. so la fitnesses and things they closed down like a week or more ago like a more corporate gym i know the multnomah athletic club which is a gym that dylan and i also go to and you as well tim it's they host a lot of tournaments big big fancy club they closed down a week ago and it wasn't until basically today that the rest of the privately owned gyms closed down. It was, they were hanging around as long as they really could. But then once the shelter in place announcement came out, now all clubs are closed. There's really nowhere to play racquetball unless you go find an outdoor court somewhere, which we're going to have to talk about later after this, because we really should. We can't just put the racket down. Like, let's go find something to hit the ball against, you know? <laughs> Otherwise, right. who are who are we? <laughs> yeah, um, we're losing our identities here. <laughs> right, <laughs> I can't stop, guys. <laughs> um, so, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, and as as far as tournaments go, who knows? I, I was supposed to go to the Pan Am Championships in Bolivia. In um, I would have left in a week, and that got uh, postponed. So that's disappointing. Um, a chance to play for Team USA, and uh, you know, it got postponed, and it makes total sense. Uh, Tim, I remember when you and I postponed or at least canceled our tournament which was today was actually the last day this we would have been playing the finals right now yeah uh or you know some of us would have been but um you know it's like and when we did it i would say 97 percent of people were very positive like okay that makes total sense and this was like it was basically right when the nba canceled the season you and i were like yeah we're gonna cancel our tournament too yeah, like exactly we're not, we're not gonna be i know, no that's so, the, I, I like following him you know and they, we yeah and we were actually kind of lucky in the sense that it hit at a point for us where we were like not you know nothing had really started like we weren't you know we were far enough away that we could cancel it and people hadn't traveled to our tournament yet. I mean, we were still over a week out and uh, it was like, okay, it's, this would be a good time to, to do it. Let's, let's not really wait on it. And uh, everyone was very positive about it. Like, yeah, you know, it makes total sense. Uh, I'm glad you guys did it. It's a smart thing to do. And even then we didn't really know where it would be at, you know, and just to think just, you know, it's sort of funny where it's at now is just like, clearly we could not have, held the event because some people were like oh you you know don't make any like rash decisions and and stuff and as the days went on you just sort of kept chuckling because it's like yeah there's just no way we could have done the event um yeah. and some people were like you know that's you know we just had a few people like i don't understand this you know it's it's not as bad as you think and and stuff like that but again that was only about three percent of the people that we let's be clear too it's like a racquetball tournament is a great place to pass around germs like yeah you know you're sweating you're in the court with somebody you're hanging out with everybody it's like <laughs> foods left you know foods out mostly you know people are touching stuff it's like you know i've never got, like, gotten any sort of i'm not saying i've gotten sick in a tournament i probably I really haven't but i can totally look at it and be like yeah this is would not be a safe activity if you're not trying to spread you know germs well and originally when you know, I'd say a few weeks before the tournament, we started realizing that COVID would be kind of something we'd have to prepare for. And we sent out that email saying, hey, we're going to be very vigilant with our, um, you know, we're going to have hand sanitizer everywhere and everything is going to be clean. And we started talking about what are some of the steps we can take to make it a, a more safe environment. And then we really realized we're like, man, there is so many things. I mean, if you think about the scorecards and the clipboards and the pencils and the balls alone, the racquetball is just being passed back and forth between players and the, back the to the, the air flows back into the court. It's like a lot of recirculated air. I know that sounds silly, but it's like it is a lot of recirculated air into the court. Mm -hmm. It's like just that alone. It's like there's just so many factors. We're just like, yeah, there's just no way that we responsibly could, you know, it would have been canceled anyway with the event ban in most states, but it's like, we looked at it and there was like, there's no way that we would be sane. You know, we would, it would be one of those things where in the back of your head the whole weekend, we'd feel we weren't doing enough and people were at risk and it would just not be, it just wouldn't have been the fun event 
that we wanted it to be. No, and the, and the participants would have been feeling that kind of anxiety of like, okay, I, you know, I'm glad that this tournament didn't get canceled, but what are we doing here right now? You know, we should not be here kind of thing. And we didn't want that to be the case. I hope the, the, the people that are in leadership positions, even people like Charlie, uh, too, it's definitely a time to, you know, lead by example. And, you know, I hope that people from the IRT and USA Ball and the LPRT and IRF, and all the different organizations around the world, I hope that they, you know, continue to be strong leaders throughout this, even if we're not having events and continue to be communicative with, with the players and, and the fans. And uh, yeah, it's gonna take some creativity to climb out of this one. Cause clearly like what is also a fact that almost everyone's going through, but, but a lot of these organizations do not have much money. They're kind of probably on the border anyway and of the danger zone as businesses go. And then something like this is gonna hit them hard. You know? So I, I do worry and I, and I hope that, you know, we also have a responsibility to continue to prop these organizations up to make sure that, you know, things like USA Racquetball doesn't crumble under something like this. Yeah. One thing, and this is, it's on a somewhat related tangent, but we've talked a little bit in person, not recorded about just the way that people on the racquetball internet discuss racquetball. So people on Facebook, people on Reddit, um, and Tim, I know you had a Reddit post recently about the IRT tournament. Um, you were a bit critical of them continuing that tournament, uh, despite the coronavirus stuff going on. I was curious just to get your guys' opinion on just the, the state of racquetball on the internet and, and any thoughts that come up for you guys with regard to how people discuss it on Facebook, on Reddit, wherever you're seeing it. I would say, um, Sometimes it is a little discouraging, you, you know, you'll be, there's, uh, you know, there's just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of opinions out there or a lot of um, times where people aren't afraid to express what their real thoughts are, or they just don't really know what they're talking about a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, I mean, racquetball, we're clearly, we're not on that level of, of professional sports like the NBA and things like that that it's, it's sort of hard to be critical of the NBA because they've got, I mean, they have everything they have uh, from the production standpoint, mostly, you know, um, they're, they're right up there with, with uh, the best. And, and we're sort of, we're, we're, we're doing our best to keep up with that stuff. And uh, the, the thing is with racquetball is like so many people wear so many different hats. You can't just have one person and their only job is just that one thing, for example, you know, I mean, just, uh, you could take Dean Bear, for example, is, is the, he's the guy that's talking during, he's the commentator. And, but he has so many more roles than just the commentator. You know, I mean, he, uh, he's basically, he's a part of the, the IRT. He's, he helps run these tournaments and, you know, just for what they do, and then Pablo is the production manager. You could say he's, he's the one who does all the streaming and I've gotten to see what it takes to create a stream like that. And just for one person, really just for one person to be doing all that is, is crazy, you know? 
it at most, yeah, for example, at a squash tournament, Pablo went to the squash, uh, squash tournament in San Francisco is like a major tournament. And he said that for what, for what they do, they have like 10 people on their crew for the production. And that's just, and then it's just him for racquetball, just one. And he does a really good job still. And if you watch the two, you know, squash, clearly their image, you know, especially if they're playing in that, uh, their show court, you know, that's a, it's a better production. And we're playing in, in places like YMCA's and, and things that maybe aren't necessarily perfect for the streaming or, or the, the cameras. Um, but if you were to really watch them side by side, you'd realize like, there's not a lot that's different aside from kind of the image that squash has, but the production quality is, is very close to the same. And, you know, for one person to be doing that versus the, the crew of 10 that squash has is really pretty impressive, but it sort of shows like, there's, there's not the money to hire more people and to make a better and just continue to make a better production, you know? Uh, so for how much each person has to do in order for them to make an event like that happen is just an extraordinary amount of work and things fall through the cracks sometimes. Yeah. I mean, some, some things aren't perfect basically, but it is a little bit of a bummer when people don't really understand that, or they just don't come to the tournaments. They don't, they just see what, what they see through the, through online, basically. No, I agree. I agree. I think it's easy to sometimes, it's easier to criticize something than it is to build something or, or to help something out. And mm -hmm. to your point, it's like, I think that a lot of what goes on, um, like on the internet, what, what, with what is available to the average fan is awesome. So on one hand, I want to say, if you're listening to this and you're just a fan of racquetball, like there is so much good stuff on Reddit and on Facebook and on YouTube. You can watch live streams, pro matches. You can reach out to get lessons from like Sudzy Monchik. You can watch Bobby Horn and Robert Collins, their training regiments. There's a ton of really valuable information. It's like, even on Reddit, it talks about like how to find clubs in your local area, how to hook up with different players. There's a lot of good stuff, um, but at the same time, you know, a lot of discussion um, that takes place on the internet can be ruled by a vocal minority. And I feel I wouldn't want someone who doesn't maybe isn't quite in the mainstream to look at racquetball and think this is, you know, online doesn't represent the diversity of opinions in the sport. And I just want people to know that, that it's a lot of the discussion and stuff is not necessarily what you're gonna get if you go into the racquetball communities themselves. Um, so that would be my one kind of thing is that, you know, it's, and to that point, one of the reasons why there are vocal minorities and the reasons why, you know, people have to wear a lot of different hats is because there's a lot of holes to be filled in there's a lot of positions that need filling. So it's, you know, they can just get filled by whoever. Um, now the plus side of that is that if you're like a young creative person who's looking for an avenue, well, we may have an, a lane open for you. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's a lot of opportunity for someone, I think in the sport, because it's like, 
if you want to become like the commissioner of the IRT, like you could maybe do that someday. Like that is not an unreasonable goal. Or if let's say you're hearing this right now and you're just, uh, you know, you're maybe just out of college or just out of high school and you're really into video editing and you want to get your work out there. Well, there may be a, a you know, a, a, maybe an unpaid internship for you at the IRT where you can actually truly affect what the makeup of what the, what the, what the sport looks like. It's like people can actually truly affect things. And so there's not a lot of, there's not necessarily a lot of to get into a lot of these positions, but at the same time, it allows people uh, with an idea and an opportunity uh, to come into the sport. Yeah. A few thoughts that I have are just one. I think there's a pretty big disconnect between what you hear people talk about in person versus what you see on the internet where I think, Tim, you're totally right. There's a vocal minority of people who can be super critical of the sport and its direction, and they can be critical of organizations like USA Racquetball and the IRT, and they can be critical of individuals. You know, I've seen criticism of, like, Kane and of who, like, John Scott at the time, of the current IRT people. Um, and, and what I often think when it comes to that, these are – thankless positions these are thankless organizations and a lot of these people are doing a ton of work especially on the organizational side rather than the playing side they're doing a ton of work for no pay or little pay or they can even be like losing money and then they're seeing this criticism of them on facebook and i don't think people understand that they're criticizing a specific person who's putting in a ton of time basically volunteering um, and, yeah. and who's just trying their best. And that can be really hard for the people in those positions. And yeah. that sucks. And, and for, for the players, for if you're Kane and you're getting criticized online, despite being completely dominant, I mean, that's never a good thing. And at the same time, I've been guilty of, and, and I think that there is something to be said for providing constructive criticism and saying it'd be great to see this or that or the other thing provided in by racquetball so yeah i see both sides of it i i am really not a fan of people who just want to entirely criticize people or organizations without really doing anything to help themselves um so yeah those are some of my thoughts and this goes back to what we were talking about the disconnect between the professional and the fan and the organization and the fan or whatever it's i you guys ever watch um like first take or one of some of those sports shows with like, you know, Shannon Sharp and Stephen A. Smith, and they're kind of entertaining at, at points. And I think it's kind of looked on as generally good fun. The guys try to make some points. They call things out. They just talk about the hot topics of the day. You know, I can't imagine. I, I would think if that were to happen, the discussion were to be about racquetball and racquetball players, I think people would look at that as as attacking other people. Because in racquetball, the barrier is so thin that to get up on there and critique something that Kane has done or something like, you know, how often are these guys critiquing something LeBron did in his personal life and how it affects the organization of the Lakers? It's like, well, you could say the same thing about Kane affecting Prokenics. And there's tons of issues that are ripe for discussion, but we can't exactly have them because it feels insensitive because they're just part of our community. It's not like, to some degree, it seems like 
when like Stephen A. Smith is talking, he's almost a commentator on the dramatic play that is American sports. It almost feels there's like a theatrical nature to it. It's not like you're necessarily calling out, you know, saying individual people are evil or stupid or whatever, but it's kind of like there's this grand spectacle in front of us here in American life, that's the American sports, and we can kind of critique them and talk about them. And it doesn't feel like we can actually really do that in racquetball. What do you guys think? It's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, you know, even going back to how it's it's not as easy to have negative things to say about the NBA or something that maybe not as is true because you know if you if you were to go and watch a, a highlight video of LeBron, one of the first comments you would see is like, I don't know, just probably something negative about him. Well, do you think it feels less cruel when Stephen A. Smith critiques LeBron? because they're both extremely wealthy and live great lives based on their professions. And if we can, you know, we said something very critical about, you know, um, I don't know. Well, here's the difference. It goes back, it goes back to like our first, almost the first thing we we're talking about is that disconnect between fan and athlete, like having, not having that disconnect in, in racquetball. If someone were to come and say like, something negative about Kane or, or, you know, you or I, it would, you know, it's like, we would see that. And it's almost like you could just respond. You could just be like, wait, why you, what, what, you know, you <laughs> and people do what's yeah. up with that. Yeah. Like, why would you say that about me or something? But you know, for LeBron, he never, he probably never even sees it. I mean, I'm sure he sees some, it's, it's almost part of the, the, the media spectacle. It's like, you know, for him, he can't take that stuff too seriously. But I imagine, you know, he takes certain things seriously, but it's like, you know, I can't imagine that um, LeBron gets super pissed every morning when he hears every little thing that's said about him, right? Mm. Well, yeah. you just, you wake up every morning and just say like, whatever, I know people are talking bad about me. And you just, whatever, I mean, you hear it in like rap songs all the time, right? Or what, I don't know, just haters gonna hate and- uh, <laughs> part of a thriving industry like having the commentators whether you love them or you hate them or you agree with them or you disagree with them it's a sign of a thriving ecosystem and maybe that's kind of a little bit we're even trying to do but it's like you may think that those sports pundits are stupid but it shows how successful the sports themselves are to that they can spawn full kind of discussion forums about themselves yeah, I do see a whole lot less. So there, there could be criticism of players, like people criticize LeBron all the time or whoever. But you don't see nearly as much criticism of the league or the, you know, the NBA in general. Whereas yeah. I think a lot of what you see in racquetball is just straight up criticism of USA Racquetball or this tournament director or IRT. Um, they do yeah, hold so. to account sometimes. And the commissioners, you know, feel you know, that, yeah, it's hard to say. I really don't, I'm really not sure about that, but, uh, but yeah, there's, it just feels a little bit more personal and a little bit more, um, you know, it's a little bit more hurtful and a little bit more real in racquetball than it would be talking at the bar to your friends about, you know, professional baseball or something. Well, you yeah. know, there's, I mean, there's the, are you, am I still here? I got a message saying, okay. All right. You're good. Uh, am I here? Um, <laughs> You're alive. So, so uh, 
you know, we talk about like the keyboard warriors, you know, and there is like this population that, that enjoys basically sitting there and kind of, I mean, it's almost part of their personality in, in a ways. And I could relate to that. Like I was not as positive of a person in my past as I am now, like I'm a little bit more, I don't know. I just chilled out a little bit. <laughs> Whereas before I was like, I thought, uh, just, I, I sort of had a negative view of a lot of things and it was easy for me to just, when you see something you just criticize it. And I don't think that really has to do with like racquetball, like the IRT USA racquetball or LeBron. <laughs> I think it's just that the people who are saying these things, it really is more of a personal thing for them than it is what they're actually talking about. I mean, that's that, you know, like, are we really, are we, you know, Yes, we we take their criticism and we try to improve upon it, but you know it's not that racquetball is necessarily doing a lot of things wrong or LeBron or or anything like that. It's just that there's a population out there that loves to just get on the keyboards and and state their opinion on the negative things that they see and whatever they you know. And, and that's I mean that's at least my my take on it is. It's not really that anyone's doing any, a whole lot of things wrong. It's just that there are people out there who like to express their opinions. Yeah, no doubt. So with that in mind, though, we talked a little bit about how people always have these ideas for how to improve the sport. And without this is in no way meant as a criticism of the current state of affairs, but what are some maybe even half-baked ideas that you guys have for how we could improve racquetball from where it is today? Go ahead, Tim. You got anything? Wow. Um, Tim, I know you have a lot of half-baked ideas <laughs> about racquetball well, and how to improve. I haven't had a half-baked one in a while. That's my issue. Um, so <laughs> what, what comes to mind off the bat, I could probably you know, think of a few things. What comes to mind off, off the bat, and I do really like the broadcast, would be to continue focusing on the video end of things. So have highlight reels that are spliced together with cool graphics and music um i think continuing to if you have to like look at the landscape i think continuing to evolve and make the broadcast better uh is something that is going to be important i think one of the biggest things we can do to kind of like grow the professional game would be to um display racquetball in all its glory what i mean is like when my like girlfriend had come watch me play racquetball for that tournament at like an open or pro level she's like it is so fast and you know people are diving around it seems very fast very intense you understand the athleticism of the athletes i don't feel that though it has gotten better and i'm not i couldn't do better personally myself but it's like though the production value has i think gone up slightly i don't think it truly conveys the the physicalness, the speed, and kind of the adrenaline-inducing uh, things that we do on the court. So my thought would be when people kind of see it as more of like, I want to see racquetball as more of like a, it's more of like a Red Bull situation. You know what I mean? It's kind of like I'd like to see it, you know, as more extreme in that sense. Um, so yeah, for me, it's like figuring out a way to convey the physicalness of the sport two people on their smartphones. What would that look like? 
Um, to me, that would look like, I mean, what I'm picturing in my head is like high quality, not live video necessarily, but like high quality video production done during a match from various angles with very good sound effects. And um, yeah, because I mean, I do know that like, you even watch some of the rallies from the tennis broadcasts from, you know, 15 years ago. I think some of those do a much better job of displaying the athleticism than the IRT broadcast currently. And that's a lot of because they had professional cameras on swivels with editing crews and they were all mic'd up perfectly. Now I know it's much harder to do that in, a, in one day at a YMCA when you don't have all the, the amenities. So I, I clearly understand that, but I think trying to figure out a creative way to let the athletes come through over video. I don't believe like I, I love audio video, you know, I'm a video game guy. I love it all. I know the technology is out there. It's like, it's not unattainable to get better cameras and have someone who really understands the sport edit very well. You know, it's like watching a music video, the editing is done, you know, right on cue with musical cues and certain things in the video are, are gonna, you know, people can come up with ways to make a racquetball video that induces the emotion that I think it should. I don't see it being done yet, that's all. Yeah, it's definitely, um, my opinion is also that it's, uh, technology can probably be the single greatest factor in, uh, in you know, the popularity of racquetball. I, I just, sorry not to interrupt you, I just, my, and <laughs> don't get me going here, but I don't think that the IRT broadcast or any racquetball pop broadcast truly bring in new people. I think it's great fan service for the constituents that we have or people that already play, but it is, I have not, well, I've known so many of my friends that don't play racquetball these books and no one has been really interested or impressed or you know they may ask a few questions but it's not gripping stretch the imagination so i think we need to come to that fact that it is not entertaining beyond those people who love racquetball already right well it's a really a difficult game to understand if you've never really seen it before it's mm -hmm. I mean, just especially at the high level, yeah. like the ball had how fast it's going, True. which is 150 miles an hour. And then, you know, you've got lines in the, in the court. So, you know, and, and just, and this is in no way to meant to diss what's going on now because there right. have been improvements made, but I can tell you explaining the rules of racquetball, watching some of those old, you know, uh, tennis channel productions is 10 times easier than even the, the current IRT streams. Mm -hmm. That's what I'll say too. It's right. like, you can, you can have a chance to explain to people what's going on with a better stream. But I feel like where we're at now, it's like, you know, people don't even really want to ask. I, I feel that it's like, you can't, you know, it's not helpful. It's like pointing it almost, it almost seems like you're pointing at pixels. Well, like, you know, trying to explain racquetball in like five rallies would be like, 
Okay, so that serve was short, which meant it didn't cross this line. Okay, next one, that ball skipped, which means it hit the floor. Oh, this one, yeah, that was an avoidable hinder, and now you're gonna have to explain what that is. You know, it's. Uh... But conceptually, racquetball isn't so crazy. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of nuance to it once you get into it, but basically, you just need to know you hit the ball against the wall on the fly, and it can only bounce once. Right. And I mean, and generally, people can follow that, and people can understand that as a concept. But generally, generally, and you would, you would also think, especially how popular it was in the 70s and 80s, clearly it wasn't like a problem that people didn't understand the rules right away. But, you know, I've got a lot of theories on this. One is that the game was slower back then. And, you know, I think it really was a little easier to understand. Um, you could actually follow... And now, I mean, it's basically it's twice as fast. The game has totally changed. It's it's very very fast, um, and you know the argument can be made that it that it should be slower. It should the game should slow down a little bit, and you know the rallies will become longer and things like that. And um, you know I I, th I think it's a good point. I I think slowing it down a little bit would would make more sense not not going faster where the rallies just really are shorter and only players who understand the game are gonna you know know what what was going on and then i think even online it, it's a it's a tough sport to follow even as a, a good you know even if you do know what's going on i think things like well, the technology for one is super important, but camera angles yeah, the court is really important. Uh, you know, your, your reference to like Red Bull, Tim, mm -hmm. I always, I had, we're just giving free plugs out in this podcast, but like my, my idea would be like GoPro would be a great racquetball company um, because they're, they're kind of on the same line as, as Red Bull. It's, it's, they build cameras for action sports and they're small so there's time yeah so like you know I, I always thought like why don't we just put 10 gopros all over the racquetball court i mean in every corner and stuff and they you know you'd be surprised the way they do it at the irt now is they have a, a square camera on the front wall it's about the size i don't know of uh just like a can can of beans or something is like that that size basically it's on the front wall and it doesn't get hit very often. Very, very rarely does it ever get hit. So even having cameras all over the court, yeah, I don't think they would get hit ever. Imagine, and this is just now, this is like uh, fan fiction here, but it's like, imagine, imagine we got, you know, this match between Rocky and Kane and there's cameras everywhere. And later on you edit it and you're able to like, you guys ever seen Kane take swings when it's super slow motion, like super, super slow. It's so cool. So imagine you have that and then you speed the rally up to normal speed and then you slow it down again and then you're able to like change camera angles, cue the music, cue the motivational words by Kane. And it's like, you have an awesome promo right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I want that, you know, like I say this because as a fan, that's what I want. You know what I mean? I think that's what would appeal to folks. It's like a really yeah. cool badass because the, to me, the sport itself is badass, like with how fast it is and how how strong players need to be and how fast they need to be and the kind of you just it all the diving you know it's it's all great 
and I just want to see that on display in all its glory. That's where I'm at. Yeah, the, the production that we have now doesn't give the sport justice for how exciting it really is. Like in that court when you're playing or even up close as a fan, you know, it's really hard to capture that on camera. It never truly will because being courtside at Madison Square Garden is always going to be better even if you have been having the best TV in the world. But I, you know, I still think that, you know, it can be better. I don't know. Some, sometimes I'm glad I'm watching stuff on TV, like not racquetball necessarily, but uh, you know, like some, sometimes like, wow, I'm glad I got to see that in super slow motion replay. And, right. And, you know, you're a lot more up close and, and personal with the players. Whereas if you're in the, nosebleeds of madison square garden you know they're they're a lot smaller so yeah you know it can be it can be a lot better i think like but I'm we're not super hd slow-mo replays of great rallies as the guys are getting ready to serve right wiping their sweat like that would be so much fun and it would be super entertaining you know mm -hmm. yeah and yeah. right now 90% of the even more of the people who are watching these professional matches are online when you see like 3000 people watching at that moment at the US Open or you know at some of those and there's like 300 there live <laughs> yeah or you know and it's still pretty packed 300 people maybe there's more maybe I, I, but either way way more people are online watching and you can see the replays and things like that. So that's really where the future is. It's, you can only fit so many people in the actual uh, arena or the, the court, but it's, it's all, you know, our direction is gonna have to be towards the production online. I just really, think it's such a hard, it would be such a hard sell. Like, I don't know what goes on behind the scenes, but like, you know, me and, me and Charlie have worked to just like, you know, over the years to support our tournaments and get sponsorship. And it, it's doable and certainly not easy, but I can imagine how tough it would be for the IRT to try to collect sponsors. Cause it's like, you know, the sponsors, if there was this really awesome broadcast, it's like, sure, that's something you can point to, but it's like, man, it must be a tough sell to get sponsors for the IRT. And I don't say that to like diss on them. I just say that like, as a matter of fact, Man, if I was in charge of getting sponsors for the IRT, like maybe I could do okay, but it still seems to be a really hard sell. I'd have a I'd have a hard time being successful with that. Yeah, no doubt. And one thing I would add is so I think there's like the technology you guys were mentioning, making the broadcast better. I think also showcasing the athletes and their stories and all the off the court stuff. Totally. Doing interviews, whatever it might be in order to showcase some of the the personalities in the sport because we have some really cool people in the sport and i think that's what people connect to to a large degree i think oftentimes people are watching a sport more for the storyline like if you take boxing when they have the the 24 7 or whatever it's called yeah. that's called that's following like a floyd mayweather so that cool. gets people really interested in the fight not so much just the technical you know the boxing match they want to see this because they want to see these two guys who hate each other. That's maybe the storyline that's offered, especially in boxing. They want to see that those guys go at it. And it's more the yeah. storyline and the emotion that gets people interested. Totally. But I, I want to go ahead, dude. I just want to say one last thing. Yeah. I say, go ahead, but let me say one last thing. <laughs> Thanks. Frigga. Really cool fan fiction idea. 
it's like leading up to a tournament made it 12 or 14 tournaments a year right maybe 12 tournaments 10 turn i don't even know how many more pro tournaments but it's like you are with the one pro leading up to the tournament week so it's like you're with that pro for three or four days before the event and you're like with them in their home you know and you're like a you just have a camera and you're like recording them on the, their training you get to see what their life is like at home and kind of what they're like and then you follow them on their travel you, know, you board the plane with them you you watch them over there hotel, and then you, you follow them getting ready for their first match their warm-up routine and then you kind of you know show how they did in the tournament and that kind of ends each video it's kind of like it not only brought like shows the player but it would be really cool to see how each person gets ready and deals with that and you know i would i would like that i actually old probably eight years ago um had had it all lined up for two people to go on tour with me for one year and film one of them was a professional like video videographer you could say i mean he would he would film and then he would edit videos he was very good you know, amateur video. I mean, he's basically a professional, actually. That's how he made his money. Um, and then he ended up having a family emergency and he was from Ukraine. So he had to go home and it all just sort of fell through. But I thought it would be so cool, like, to – I just – I mean, whatever sport it is, I, I love following an athlete through the ups and downs of training and competing and – you know, victories and defeats and things and throughout a season and seeing, you know, I, I, I love that idea. Basically, it would be so fun to, to follow and see what it's like to train for this and, and yeah, totally. the life of a pro racquetball player, because that's not, you know, nobody knows what that life really looks like. Uh, not even other racquetball players true yeah it's not it's not a it's like well so what do you do like what does your training looks like you know everybody loves to see it everybody loves the videos of training that that other pros put out even if it's just a quick little workout or a photo of them doing some footwork stuff or something i mean they just they love it and then they're like oh like then they're like i'm gonna go do footwork today you know or oh that's what they do okay i'm gonna do that too or that's what they eat you know it would be just a little mini docu-series would be awesome yeah know? player gets like you know a, a week where the the cameras follow him and that's their kind of spotlight and then it's edited to make it you know four or five minutes and yes i would be eating those up for sure kane i know kane has a you know he had a uh, somebody following him around with a camera for a couple tournaments the u.s open was one of them i don't know if you guys ever saw like a camera kind of on kane it was it was a little, it was uh, subtle, you know, it wasn't like, you know, but I remember hearing that there's a company in Canada who's doing a documentary on them or something like that. So we might see something like that coming out soon if, if it all goes well. And, and that would be very cool. That'd be very cool to see, see uh, how it all goes down from the athlete's perspective. Yeah, that would be awesome. And yeah, this has been a bit of a longer podcast. So thanks for sticking in here with me guys, but I wanted to kind of wrap it up with what is your favorite racquetball story? Let's see. Uh, favorite racquetball story. Tim, do you have one off the top of your head? You know, not, like, uh... okay, well I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll probably say 
my one of my favorite memories was when I won the 10 and under nationals. Um, it was a trip to Baltimore and I went with like my family and my grandparents went also and we also visited other relatives and then um, and I was really obsessed with like Oakley sunglasses like Oakley's you know I was only 10 years old but I had a few players at my club who had like Oakley eye guards you know and I was like oh man I want some of those you know and but of course they're like super expensive so at at that nationals they were paying five dollars if you refereed a match uh so i basically refed enough matches to earn 150 dollars, which is 30 matches total which in a five-day tournament is six matches per day so i refed six matches per day at five dollars a day and won the thing on top of that won my division earned 150 dollars and the very next day went and bought a pair of oakley sunglasses and uh, i still have them to this day <laughs> so just that whole like baltimore experience for me it was like my probably my favorite uh racquetball memory and just all of it coming together winning having my family there and buying some Oakleys afterward. <laughs> and the club itself, I don't think you guys ever went to that club, unless you didn't go to that Nationals in 1997, did you, Prigo? I think I did, yeah. You did in Baltimore? Oh, no, no, I didn't go, not in Baltimore. Okay. <laughs> just, <laughs> he wasn't weird. listening. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that he knew. What, what was your first Nationals, Tim? I don't remember, dude. I really don't. Maybe Portland, Oregon? Portland in 98, that was the very next year. Yeah, I think 98 was my first one. We would have been in 12 and under. Yeah. And dude, one of my favorite stories is from that year because, and I have really three stories, Dylan, but I'm going to try to be quick with them. The first story right. is about nationals. When I was a kid, I, it was the first time I traveled without my parents up to Portland, Oregon for nationals with my friend. Um, and we went into the hotel and I was, we were there a day early. And I went to the hotel and I, like took a nap and woke up and I thought I had my match. So I went to the club and it turns out I just, I just seriously took a nap. I didn't like sleep through the night. So it was still the same day that I arrived at the, I was just so hyped up. So I showed up to the club the same day that I flew in thinking it was the next day. And then I, they told me like, Oh no, it's like, this is still Thursday. And I'm like, Oh shoot. Like I just took a nap and I didn't actually go to sleep and wake up. <laughs> but I was young, you know, I probably, you know, I probably wouldn't have, and it was a different, you know, like 20 years ago, it was a different time, you know? I was <laughs> sure. But, alone. It was so kind of weird, right? I didn't know what I was doing out there. <laughs> um, yeah, the sec my second favorite memory is not like one memory, but it's like the old school nationals in that took place in Houston. My favorite memories from those are pretty much any Jimmy Lowe match because they drew a big crowd and he was at the height of his glory at that point and he had a great corner man named joe lee and this guy is also military and he would just talk jimmy up to the crowd the whole match and you had jimmy in there usually playing great giving you know thrusting and doing the six shooters and stuff and just really like you know playing up to the crowd and it just was such great fun entertainment i don't think i've ever seen more like entertaining racquetball uh than that okay. and my 
my favorite personal memory from playing is I had went down to a tournament with Charlie some years ago to Modesto, California. And as I was driving in, I think we were both singles. They asked me, oh, do you want to pick up doubles? I'm like, oh, sure. I want to pick up mixed doubles. And it's like, I ended up playing three or four divisions. And uh, it seemed like whatever, you know, we were on a road trip. I could play some, play some matches. And I ended up playing like eight or nine matches in one day. And I kind of like condensed it all. And I remember towards the end of the day, Charlie like almost takes me by the collar and leads me outside. He's like, Krieger, you're not looking too good. Like we need you to get in the car. Me <laughs> <laughs> in the car. And he hands, like, I can't really talk because my mouth is so dry. Like I'm like, you know, like extreme, extreme dry mouth. I probably had any water or anything. And he's just giving me like this, this bread with all these nuts in it. And I remember just trying to eat it, but barely being able to swallow it because I was so dry. And Charlie's like, you need to eat this bread, man. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, what does this come to? Like, I, it was so much fun. It was one of those like absurd moments, I guess, in, in racquetball where it's like, I don't care that I'm like borderline, maybe dehydrated or like I'm about to like pass out. Cause like, I'm having a lot of fun doing this, you know? So for me, it's like that, that's a great memory. <laughs> I, I remember, I definitely remember that. <laughs> I feel like there's more, there's, there's a few of those stories out there of Tim, like barely surviving a tournament. Back on. You have to bring it back on. But so, yeah, it's like, I remember talking Tim into going to this tournament in, in NorCal and, and being like, yeah, you know, we'll go down. It'd be great. And, uh, and somehow, you know, I think it was like originally you signed up for two events and then like the tournament director asked like, do you, can you, you want to play mixed also? And you were like, all right, sure. Three events. And then we get there and we realized that all of his divisions are round robins. So it was like inevitably, inevitably we looked at it and we're like oh my gosh tim you are gonna have nine matches today nine <laughs> like you know <laughs> yeah. and it was it was like i don't even remember how i did in the tournament but it was almost like my main goal was like we have to get tim we have to get tim through this day you know like tim this is your this is your day like i almost felt responsible like asking him to come down and we drove to it too yeah. you know we we road trip down there and then here yeah. he is on Saturday playing nine matches. And it's just like, is that even possible? Like, I've never heard of that. I've never heard of anybody playing nine <laughs> matches in a tournament. Either. And we did the math on it. And some of them went tiebreaker. And that was like 20-something games that he played in that one day. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was like it was there, I, I felt vaguely responsible for, you know, you getting yeah. through that tournament alive. They, they were great. I remember when the tournament was over, there was no keg or anything. So it was kind of like, it's a small event. And they're just like, they just went out and bought like a couple 30 racks and we're just passing beers with them, sitting on the stoop of the court on Sunday, just talking about the tournament. So no, good people. Love that place. What was that place called? The Courthouse, huh? The Modesto Courthouse. Was that in Modesto? Yeah. Gone now, unfortunately. But That wasn't too long ago either. But um. Yeah, those are those are definitely all. And I bet any racquetball player who's been playing for more than ten years would have some stories just like that. You know, I mean, yeah. ro road tripping. To, I mean, Dylan, you and I road trip to Montana. A f you know, a few months ago, it was it was awesome. We ended up yeah going to Glacier National Park, which is you know a pretty amazing place, obviously. And road trips are are 
probably my favorite thing. You can't do it to every tournament. Like I'm not going to road trip to New York or something, but if it's like in California or yeah, Montana or something like that, where it's even possible like that, um, that was, that was the best, uh, best way to, to do it. You pile some people in a car, save on gas and you know, something is going to come out of it. You know, something funny, like all these stories or something cool. Anyway, it just opens up the door for all that stuff. Well, Dylan, how about you, man? What's I guess? Yeah. What comes to mind for me is we went to Bolivia for worlds when I was 14 and that was the one year I made the team. So I was like, especially pumped to be on it. And I remember a few interesting things happened from that one, the Bolivian president spoke at the sort of like orientation for the event, which was amazing. And I remember seeing vans up in the Hills and thinking like there was a little bit of political unrest at the time and people were thinking that it might have been like you know security or like snipers up in the hills um <laughs> so that was really interesting just being in bolivia was super cool um being with the team and everything um we had a our men's team like barely eked out mexico and i remember just being really hyped up about that and it was also a crazy event because I would say about half of the participants and everybody around the tournament who weren't from Bolivia or anything got sick, just food poisoning in the area. You had to be like incredibly careful about that stuff. I was lucky enough to have it happen after the tournament, but a lot of people had it during the tournament and it kind of affected the results of it, which was pretty crazy. So that was, that was one of the most just interesting racquetball memories and stories for me. Yeah. So, <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's anytime you travel to a new country, it's you're always introduced to different uh, bacteria or germs or whatever. And it's this may be an ignorant question to ask, but do you think players from like Bolivia and Mexico and stuff, do you think they get sick when they come to the US for events? Like, do you think they need to get used to our water and stuff? I don't think so. I'm not positive. I'm not, positive. I'm not a doctor. I actually, and I don't know if that's like a, a not a, a bad thing to even ask but, but uh, you know when you people travel like where are you going to go for the pan am game charlie peru or you mean the pan am championships i was yeah you went to costa rica right last for the worlds i went to costa rica for the worlds yep and i went to lima peru for the pan am games gotcha and like the first time i went to costa rica for example i got sick and you know, yeah, that's, that's like always a uh, kind of a fear or not, you know, it's just something you have to always bottled water, like always bottled water, but that's a good question. Like do, do players from Bolivia come to the USA and get, and, you know, get sick. That's, you know, I've never, I don't remember Well, worlds, the junior worlds were, it was in the USA for a lot of years, many years, only until the past 10 or so years has it started going a little more international and stuff. Oh, you know who I want to call out an entire country right now. Oh. I want to call out the country of Canada. Like, step your game up and get a tier one, Canada. You guys <laughs> deserve it. And there's enough good players that come out of there and that play there. Like, I want to see some sort of Canadian Grand Slam in the next few years, you know? Like, someone up there, hopefully they're listening. Come on, Canada. You know, you know all these other countries got... Why can't you have one? <laughs> Twos or tier threes. It's like yeah, yeah, nationals. That's all well and good. But I think you guys need to represent and bring an IRT tier one up there. 
I did not think when we started this podcast that Tim was going to put an entire country on notice like that. <laughs> Just calling out <laughs> an entire country. You know, it's time to get one up there, guys. That's all I'm saying. I love it. All right, guys. Thanks so much for coming on. This was a fun discussion. I hope people have made it this far with us. If you've, if you've listened to this whole thing, you're a legend, and I appreciate it. Guys, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Dylan. Uh, yeah, and I think we should do more of these because we're going to have a lot more time on our hands anyway. We'll, we'll call it the COVID series or something. And, uh, <laughs> and we can, there were a lot of things that we didn't even talk about, but we can talk about maybe on a different one. So another yeah. person too. We'll bring in another pro. There That's we go. right. Yeah. From, we from just got to get like, get 20 people in the zoom call and just get it going young who's willing to make a few mistakes you know like someone non-pc that's maybe just wanting to spout out we'll have some hot hot stuff <laughs> well let's get wayne let's just get wayne antone on <laughs> well maybe we should only give him a few minutes because it's like we shouldn't give him the whole time but you know give wayne a five minute kind of like a stand-up comedian gets a high five like wayne can present like his shit in five minutes you know <laughs> or just have the mute button ready dylan <laughs> that's a good idea there we go i like it good stuff well thanks guys appreciate it this was fun See all right you. later guys appreciate it